This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A joint press conference between Hamilton and York Regional Police has linked the shooting of uh, Mila Barberi and Angela Musitano with uh, apparently uh, vehicles, personnel involved with both of these crimes. To talk more about this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, uh, rossmcleansecurity.com to find out more. Before we bring Ross on, though, uh, let's listen to the clips from York Regional Homicide Detective Jim Kiley. Our investigation has led us to believe that the dark-colored Honda Coupe is the same Honda Coupe that was driven in the Angelo Musitano homicide, which is currently being investigated by the Hamilton Police Service. Further, we also believe that the killer of Mila Barberi is also responsible for killing Angelo Musitano. Both of our investigations have been extensive and thorough, and they're, they continue to be ongoing. He's uh, male white, slim build, approximately 5 feet 8 to 5 feet 10, with short or shaved hair and was operating a 2013 to 2015 four-door white Honda Civic Si at the time of the murders. All right, uh, that is Detective Tom from uh, Hamilton Police Services. Uh, let's bring in Ross McLean, security expert, and uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com crime specialist. Ross, what are your thoughts on this? When I, you know, when I first heard the uh, report that. The same car was used twice. I'm thinking, well, that's pretty sloppy for for organized crime, isn't it? Well, yeah, this was a pretty remarkable press conference, and and I think what it's what it's bringing to light here, it's actually bringing quite a bit to light about the 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 nature of organized crime, the nature of these contract killers, uh, the fact that while you know we're used to the movies and tv portraying these killers as being very sharp and very good and having all the tricks clearly not the case the police are are steps ahead of them and closing in so um again i'm going from the movies here ross but usually you steal the car and then you dump it don't you you don't keep driving around in a car that's associated with a crime this seems like it's rank amateurish well, here's here's one of the failings of criminals and of people in general. We're creatures of habit. So you may have someone who's decided that this is their favorite car. It's a black Honda Civic. It melds in anywhere. No one else is going to find it or see it. I'm going to keep it. I think we discussed that last time when I was talking to you, that this is the problem with vehicles. When you use vehicles for crimes, they all they all leave a great big data trail. They all have VIN numbers. They all have to be insured. Some of them have loans on them. They get parking tickets. They get captured on surveillance videos. All sorts of ways that cars get picked up on. Now, the police remarkably say that this is the same vehicle. So it does point to the fact that you don't always have the most intelligent people in the world committing violent crimes. And the police, as I said to you last time when I told you they were onto these vehicles, I mentioned that Hamilton police were going to run down all the ground balls on this one. Yeah. And it seems they have. They've put a lot more together now working with York and, and Toronto police in the in the major crimes. So um, why why introduce this info today? What is what are the police trying to do by holding these press conferences? Well, they're looking for people to talk. They're looking for people to come forward now. They're looking for help for people who may be able to identify either the vehicle that now they know that maybe someone's had that vehicle for a long time. It may be that someone has something to know about that, that killing in York region. As the detective said in the press conference, 
he said, look, I'm a homicide detective, not an organized crime detective. We're investigating this as a homicide. As best he could tell, the woman was not the intended target, although she was the victim. Her boyfriend was in the car with her, and they believe that he was not have any has anything to do with organized crime. It may have been something at the business. They're still trying to figure that out. So maybe someone's got some information to bring forward here. It also helps to let the bad guys know uh, that they're coming because that makes them make more mistakes. Uh, that was my next question. Uh, how aware is organized crime of what is going on in the media and how close the trail is? Well, they're not really. The The one detective actually said that because he said, look, when they were doing their little moves with their extra cars at the York Regional hit, and even with the one down in Hamilton, they, they sort of thought they wouldn't be caught doing their counter-surveillance. And they thought they had put their ring of switching cars and making their getaway far enough away. Well, not really. They were captured. And the police are indicating that they still have some other information, which I think is actually going to be information that's going to be able to conclusively identify somebody uh, when they pick somebody up for this. So uh, they're on the trail and they're coming. Again, uh, last time we chatted about this, uh, that was the big deal, was the black Honda Civic. And as you mentioned, how they were going to, you know, they had, a, I think they had three uh, license plate uh, digits. And they were going to just start doing good old-fashioned detective work and try to track all of this down. Would you have thought that maybe these people would have got wind of that? Or Now, mind you, these are crimes that had passed, happened in the past, I guess. But that being said, what do you think the chances are of this car still being around? Well, look what just happened to the uh, alleged serial, potential serial killer in Toronto here. He was, when he thought the police were maybe closing on him, went to take his vehicle to the wreckers to get it disposed of. Yeah. As, he, as he dropped it off, the police went in and scooped it up and found evidence that allowed them to proceed with two first-degree murder charges and at least six warrants on different places. So uh, the police will be able to manage and go after that. And and they're going to be chasing uh, these guys down. Don't forget, they also give a bit more information today that the one vehicle that was used in the Hamilton hit was stolen in, in Quebec, you know, just about a month before. So what that tells us is either someone traveled to Quebec or somebody came from Quebec with that stolen vehicle with the intent of using it for doing surveillance and tying it into this, this murder. So there's going to be a trail that they're running down there as well. Uh, you talked about contract killer. Chances this person's still around, or again, like movie stuff, they flee, they get out of Dodge. Well, once again, it's just not that easy. I mean, we like to think that there's somebody who lives in, you know, uh, in the beaches over in Italy somewhere who sits around, waits for his phone to ring, and a, a secret message comes in, and he gets a quarter million dollars to go kill somebody somewhere, but that's not how it works. Yeah. That, that's just not how it works. There, uh, you have people... Uh, quite often, when they, when violence is their routine and violence is their way of making money, it means they're sort of limited in their intellectual capacity to make it any other way. And so there's problems associated with violent people. Uh, and they make mistakes. And sometimes they turn on each other, and other problems come up as well. Uh, what does this say about uh, this type of organized crime in Ontario? It seemed for a while that it was subsiding, you know, it was, it was you know, the, the glory days, so to speak, had passed. Uh, what, are we, what are we seeing now? What, why this now? Well, that's an interesting question. We didn't have anybody from organized crime really speak 
uh, today as to the motive and the reasons behind this as to why these uh, shootings have taken place. We've seen, as you said, a lot of stuff seemingly quiet down on the organized crime, but I think part of that is because the law enforcement is putting so much of their resources towards anti-terrorism that you're not seeing the same emphasis available to deal with issues of organized crime. And as long as organized crime is not leaving bodies all over the place and shooting people and those sort of things, uh, they, they can tend to operate under the radar, you know, doing some of their gambling and some of their drug moving and, and that sort of deal. So uh, do you think they will find Musitano's killer? I, I'm very optimistic about it, actually, uh, because what they've got, they've got some excellent video, some excellent photographs. Uh, I suspect they've got some other evidence that they're not revealing, as I say, that it will be likely be able to use to absolutely identify a suspect if they find someone arrests them that will tie them to the crime. Uh, and I think it's uh, really a matter of time as they go on this one. They've just got too much to go on. I mean, there's video analytics that can look and estimate height and weight of people. It can look at the way they walk and what their gait is. There's just numerous things that they can pick up. What stood out at this press conference for you? Mostly the fact that the the use of the uh, major case management system, which we've talked about before, going way back to the Dell and Millard case. What happened was the Hamilton police... Because you guys down in Hamilton, for some reason, you've been involved in a lot of pretty serious crimes, you know, the last little while. There's some history. There's some history there. Yeah, no, but that's developed a lot of experience. So you've got a lot of detectives who are used to and know how to and have the ability to reach out, you know, across uh, municipalities and forces and what are normally divisions and, and, and get answers. And this is where the problems used to take place in police departments. There used to be the old story of if you could just, you know, drive your car fast enough and get across the border to the next police yeah. uh, division, you know, uh, force, if you will, then you won't be on their radar. Their radio systems won't work. If I commit crimes just across this street and run back over this side, uh, the databases won't be able to put it together. But what's happening, I think, is you're seeing that police and their information systems are keeping, you know, steps ahead of the bad guy. And all you need to be is one step ahead uh, to win a race. So uh, I think that's what's happening is we're seeing uh, utilization of information systems, information sharing, and uh, you're getting, so as a result, you're getting a lot of intelligence uh, working on these cases. Uh, Can you see more of this type of activity, or do you think this will make uh, people lie low? Or do you think we're going to hear more about this? Do you think there's some sort of power struggle going on? Well, uh, who's to say? There's something going on. There's always lots of money involved with organized crime, lots of tax-free money, lots of it involved in drugs. Uh, Who knows how all the legalization of marijuana is going to change? That was my next question, Ross. How does that play into this? I mean, does that cut off a massive revenue stream, you know, for these sorts of organizations? Is that something that they now have to consider? We might lose money here. We've got to make it somewhere else. Well, it's going to change things. I mean, there's the the rule of unintended consequences whenever you make major changes like this without figuring them out. So while it may change the markets in some place, it may make other people say, well, I'm not going to pay the government's rates, and it may just very well, you know, beat more business to the paths of the doors of of the dealers uh, for bringing it in. It's obviously, I think, going to cause a lot of trouble for police in the terms of nuisance complaints and impaired uh, driving charges and 
investing all of investigating all of those. So we don't know what the unintended consequences are going to be when that comes in and and how that's going to affect it. Can you see, again, when government is asked about this, they say the whole reason behind it is to keep organized crime out of it. Can you see this curbing organized crime's involvement in this? Well, Canada is a massive uh, exporter of, of, of pot. We, we send more pot to the States than Mexico sends to the States. So it's always been a big-time business for us uh, doing it. So there's a lot of cash there. Um, you know, I don't see the, the, the problem is with marijuana, you can't patent it really. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, that's, that's why that's big, the, that's why big farm is not interested in this. Well, they're trying to do their yeah. own patents. Yeah. Uh, where they, where they try to grow certain strains that they say are better at working at this disease than yeah. get that one patented. But you know what? To people who just want to smoke dope, that's not their biggest concern. That's not the biggest yeah. market, right? No. They just want to get their dope and get it at a good price. And, you know, t- typically in a business, if there's barriers to entry, well, what's the barriers to entry? The law is actually saying you can grow it at home if you want, right? Yeah. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting dynamic of trying to figure it out. We're seeing a lot of police resources used to run around and close down the dispensaries here uh, in Toronto. So... You know, there's a lot of unintended consequences here, but how this is going to shake out when the government moves into the uh, into the cannabis business, that's for sure. I hear you. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert. Uh, Ross McLean, security.com, talking about a joint York Region Police uh, in relation to the Musitano case. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring Ian Lee in, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Lots to talk about. Canada has agreed to uh, resurrect uh, another version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the United States of America is open again for business. What does that mean, and uh, was it better shut for a couple of days? Uh, Ian Lee is with us now. Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, My pleasure, Scott. So first of all, Ian, your thoughts on the closure uh, temporarily of the uh, U.S. government, the shenanigans going on, and what we have today, and it's open again. Um, I've actually uh, talked about this over the years because I've published quite a bit on accountability, and I'm using accountability in a broader sense. The PBO is an instrument of accountability. Annual budgets in Parliament are. And I've argued that the the debt ceiling, first off, they're the only uh, OECD country, to my knowledge, that has one. They're not required. The U.S. could abolish the debt ceiling law tomorrow morning. And it's it was originally introduced as a method of accountability way back before the internet existed and television and radio over a hundred years ago it's it's obsolete <clears throat> it has served its time it doesn't accomplish anything except all the political posturing and they should get rid of it and um, you could even say it didn't even produce the accountability even in the olden days because they always exempted the most essential services properly so <clears throat> that would have hurt people the most. So the military was exempted and, and essential services and that sort of thing. So it's just a tool for posturing. The government was never going to go to business, and now it's come back, and the only thing that gets shut down are parks and tourism um, monuments and that sort of thing. So uh, they bought some time. What now? Oh, they'll, they've done a partial kick down the road. In other words, they passed another bill. Uh, giving uh, an authority, a spending authority, because they always tie in the debt ceiling to a spending authority. I mean, we have spending authorities, too. 
the budget every year is tabled in Parliament, and the government, the uh, the majority government of the day, whether it's Ontario or federal, passes it, and that gives uh, that parliamentary authority gives the authority to the government of Canada and the bureaucrats to go spend money. It's the same thing in the U.S. system, and so what some brilliant light did a hundred years ago is they said, why don't we at the same time bring in a bill that authorizes the government to borrow money because the governments are chronically, you know, have deficits. And so as the deficit as the deficits get added onto the national debt, then that goes that that hits the debt ceiling. So technically it's a limit on the amount of debt the government can owe. And uh, so then they have to keep going back and raising it. <clears throat> but as I said, it's just a it's a game it's it's a political game. It doesn't anyone who thinks that this has to do with the solvency of the United States is it's nonsense. The solvency of the United States comes from the fact they have a twenty trillion economy that generates huge amounts of taxes that flow into the federal government that allow it to pay its debts, including its bondholders. Why That's would they why would they why would either political party gamble this way? I mean, we all know how Americans and, and Canadians as well view this sort of uh, politics. Uh, this many would say is the reason that Donald Trump got elected is people were tired of listening to yeah. green eggs and ham during filibusters. <clears throat> how do you think the Americans are viewing this, even though it was just short lived? Well, I do agree with you that uh, this is the sort of thing that uh, got uh, Trump elected. It's this part of this toxic atmosphere that seems to exist in Washington, uh, the bipartisanship that existed for literally the beginning of the country until probably the Clinton impeachment um, has dissolved. And so there's just hatred, if not hatred, unbelievable animosity on both sides. And so both sides use it as an attempt to try to poke the other side in the eye. And they, it's a, almost a take no prisoners. And, you know, it could be spent much more productively debating other things, like how much to spend on national defense or health care or whatever. But they've decided this is a useful um, uh, whip that they can whip the other side with. Uh, all right, let's move on to the ta- Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, equal politics, well, maybe not equal. Nothing really equals Donald Trump, let's be serious. <laughs> but uh, obviously Canada showed caution on this deal and said, no, we're not, uh, we're not biting. Now, of course, uh, there's a resurrected version of this. Where are we now compared to where we were? I don't believe that there was any substantial changes to the TPP. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what, what they've done. Uh, what the Canadians have done is they've claimed this at the press conference to save face. Uh, I think that Trudeau underestimated the blowback when he walked away at the 11th hour and 59th minute. I think he underestimated that the Australians would leak to the media how angry they were, and, and it turned into quite a, a, a blot on his copybook, to use an old British phrase. Why and, did he walk away? Um, I think that he is really wedded to this idea of progressive trade agenda. Mm. Um, I, I think partly for political reasons. I assume he's trying to attract NDP supporters for the next election. I think he under, I think he's a very smart guy. Yeah. I think he understands the next election is not going to be a cakewalk mm-hmm. in 2019. And so he's being very strategic and looking ahead and saying, hey, look, I need all the supporters I can get. And uh, I mean, I'm not suggesting he doesn't believe in a progressive trade agenda. I think he does, unfortunately. I think it's, it's uh, really a uh, disguised protectionism, but it's not me that's making this decision. It's him. And uh, so I think he did it to send signals back home to the domestic Canadian audience of those people that are supporters or might be supporters, saying, hey, look, I'm not going to go along with this. I'm going to stand up to them and say I want to 
deal that benefits Canadians. Well, the deal already benefited Canadians. So That's really, right. what's changed here? Because, I mean, Nothing. obviously he's not going to make them change their, their policies. And they didn't. Yeah. The optics, all he did was able to, by postponing the acceptance, it makes it look to everybody in mm. Canada that, hey, they must have gone off and made some concessions, the other uh, ten countries. They didn't. Right. But it looks like that, so he can now declare a victory. How do the other because countries... Is that strong leadership? How do the other countries process that, Ian, though? Because they they obviously know what he's doing. Of course they do, because these the politicians at that level, at the national level of any major country, are you know they're pretty sophisticated people. Um, I think that they went along with it because they it was in their self interest too. Remember, yeah. trading is something. Sorry to Jerry Diaz and the unions. Trade is in everyone's self interest. We have known this for 300 years from economic theory, and people can laugh at economic theory, but Nobel Prizes have been given out in this, and we don't laugh at people who win Nobel Prizes, including Paul Krugman, the great progressive from the New York Times, who won a Nobel Prize showing that trade agreements, even between two wealthy countries, advantages both countries. It benefits everybody because you enhance the productivity, you enhance the standard of living. I'm not saying some people don't lose. Everybody, there's always some losers in a trade agreement. I'm being honest. But there's more winners than there are losers, which is why people support trade agreements. Uh, obviously, Trump walked away from this first. How does the U.S. view this or the fact that it, you know the rest are negotiating without them? Well, I, let's, uh, I'll put right out there. I think that Donald Trump's views on trade are just flat-out wrong. Uh, and many others have said that, so that's not very profound on my part. He's advocating, uh, without getting into the weeds here and the theory, but he's advocating uh, an old philosophy called mercantilism, which went back in the, medi- in the medieval ages, literally. And that said that uh, you, trade's only good if you run a positive surplus. Well, of course, to run a positive surplus, someone's got to be running a deficit. And so that doesn't make any sense from the start. But he subscribes to that obsolete theory. And so he walked out. He pulled the plug on TPP. But remember... And I want to emphasize this because Canadians really don't, I think, understand this. What Trump is saying is very, very popular in certain parts of the United States, starting with the Rust Belt states. And I've driven through them only last year. I'm talking Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, okay, Michigan. They hate NAFTA. They hate the TPP. They think Canadians are cheating on trade, cheating the Americans on trade. They think the Mexicans are cheating them. I don't believe that's true. But they believe it, and Trump was elected by a, a good number of people in the Rust Belt states. That's why Trump is doing what Trump is doing. He's crazy like a fox. Sooner or later, does he not have to do some sort of deal with these people? Will, is it, or will these just be overlapping deals? I think what he's going to end up doing, and he's certainly given lots of clues, and people can say yes, but he gives all kinds of contradictory clues. But he's been fairly consistent, albeit it's buried down on the 10th minute of his speeches. I think he wants bilateral deals. He doesn't like or trust international organizations like the UN or the WTO. He said so publicly many, many times. That's not a secret. I think he feels uh, that with a bilateral deal, you can do, you have a lot more control, he thinks. You know, one-on-one, you know, a mano a mano, which is very Trumpian, right? <laughs> and, and that's why if the NAFTA is abrogated, I'm sure he or our side or both sides will be within a, a very short time saying, let's do a bilateral deal just between Canada and the U.S. if, if he abrogates NAFTA. So I'm, not predict- so I'm saying Plan B is not the TPP or China. That's Plan C. Plan B, if NAFTA is abrogated, is that either the Americans or the Canadians or both 
will say, hey, let's get together and just do a, a bilateral, and we'll leave Mexico out. You know that low-wage country down there that's stealing all our jobs. I don't believe that, by the way. I mean, I don't... Where does that leave uh, the global village concept that we, well, that that, that originated NAFTA? I mean, the whole idea yeah, was the yeah. world was your oyster. So where does yeah. that leave all of that well, it's, theory? Well, it's a setback. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. As someone who believes passionately in liberalized trade, and I do, not only because I've studied it, for, and, and we know for 300 years that trade works, the wealthiest countries in the world trade the most. I keep saying that to Canadians. I say it to my students. The richest countries in the world trade the most, and the poorest countries trade the least. North Korea trades with almost nobody. You people say, well, that's North Korea. Well, what about Cuba? Cuba is desperately poor, and they trade with almost nobody. So my point is, we need more trade. We know the theory and the practice works, but Donald Trump, let's be clear, is a setback for the commitment to a globalized trade, international trade. So people like me or anyone who thinks like that has a lot of work ahead of them trying to change uh, minds. Uh, here's a question from a listener, and, and it perhaps displays this, the, the, cynic, uh, the cynicism surrounded, yeah. surrounding big business. A listener said, uh, uh, quote, I believe this deal is only so foreign corporations can sue governments involved in the deal. Could you ask your guests, guests about that? Yeah. I I once upon a time, a long time ago, I don't work or I do not consult to anybody or anything anywhere, and I don't have any investments. But once upon a time, way back when, I worked for a very large corporation called the Bank of Montreal. And that's I hear that thing about, you know, it's just for big corporations. Well, first and foremost, big corporations employ millions of Canadians. Hmm. Let's not forget that. Secondly, big corporations pay billions and billions in taxes. So I don't accept the idea that there's them called the big corporations and us way over here. We're all in bed together in Canada. And I've got the stats showing the the taxes paid and the jobs and so forth. That's the first point. The second point, businesses don't make money by suing governments. They make money by making widgets or services called Mm. the Apple iPhone and then marketing the hell out of it to try and sell as many widgets as possible or automobiles or laptops or name the product or the service. They're not in the, you don't make money suing somebody in court. It Mm. costs you money. You don't make money. How will this all play into NAFTA? Um, I still think and, and I, people, some people write me and say, why do you love Trump so much? I don't love Trump. I don't agree with anything that comes out of his mouth. I'm trying to understand what Trump is doing, and I'm trying to explain what, in the best way possible what I think Trump is up to. I, I think Trump is, wants to be reelected. He has the off years. He wants deliverables. Okay, he got his big tax bill through the Congress and, uh, and into law. I think he wants to go back with a one-two whammy for this fall. This fall, the off-year elections in the United States, 435 uh, con- Congress people up for re-election and one-third of the U.S. Senate and all the governorships. He wants to go back and say, I stood up to the Canadians. I stood up to the Mexicans, and look what I've brought you. So that's, he's going to be up. He's already back up to 40%, reported in the New York Times two days ago. What, two, three months ago he was at 30% and everyone's writing him off. He's back to 40 and by this fall, if he has some kind of a resuscitated, revised, revitalized NAFTA that he can brag to the American people is beneficial for Americans, I think he'll be up to 45 or even 48% in the public opinion polls, and he's going to retain control of the U.S. Congress. So that's what I think he's up to. He wants to deliver some, announce some deliverables over the next six months on the bully pulpit 
out there giving speeches that shows that by standing up to Canada and Mexico, he obtained some benefits for the American workers. That's where Donald Trump is going, I think. Does the art of the deal work in politics? I mean, obviously, we saw yeah. the U.S. just close down. It looked like they had a deal. Everything it looked tickety-boo there for a while. And yeah. then all of a sudden, it just went south. I, I do think it does to a degree. Uh, I say that because it comes down to the motivation on both sides. How badly do you need it? You know, it's like any negotiation. Labor management. I mean, at my own university, <laughs> the union is negotiating with the administration. You're buying a car or a house. You know, and, uh, you know, you probably heard that old adage when you're buying a car house, don't fall in love with it because then you'll overpay. Yeah. And uh, there's a really smart insight in that, that famous old adage because if you really desperately need the deal, you're going to be more motivated and more uh, uh, compelled to give up more. In Trump's instance, I don't think he wants as much as we think he wants. He wants some loud announceables, loud meaning he can brag about them. So are other world leaders, corporations, what have you, realizing that? Are they playing him as a result of that? Uh, because it seems that he's into divisiveness. He's into yeah. turn, even even members on the same team. He wants turning against each other and be competitive towards each other. Does yeah. that work in politics? If you're not talking trade now, you now you're talking uh, relationships and and is and I, I I can't. You brought up a very valid point. Relationships. Will his lack of relationships stop him from being the president he wants to? be? I think it's going to hurt him. I, I think it's sooner or later. You know, it's almost like not the Nero or, or someone like that, but you know, you backstab enough people and destroy enough people, and one day somebody somewhere says, "I've had it. I've had enough." Yeah. And I don't care the consequences. And I'm not predicting something a violent act. No, I'm talking. I'm talking someone who's says, I'm going to be willing to risk my career and everything to destroy that man. And, and you know, you cr- accumulate enough enemies, sooner or later, one of them is going to get you. And, and I just don't think uh, I, his style is, it works in the short run, you know, management by intimidation and bullying. But in the longer run, you just accumulate so many ma- enemies that it's only a question of time and, and probability that one of them is going to get you back. And so that's I don't how, think it is successful. And that's how you wonder how he's going to take this gong show into the next, in, into another administration, into another term. I'm not predicting he's going to win the yeah. next election, by the way. I, I don't want to make the, put that out there in our conversation, Scott. I, I think that between now and 2020, I'm not talking the off-year yeah. elections. I think he's going to carry them. But by 2020, uh, if you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like British politics. I mean, who's deposed Margaret Thatcher and some of the greatest British prime ministers? conservative backbenchers mm. in her own party put the knife into her. And so what I'm saying is I think the knife, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically, everybody, I'm not talking uh, mm-hmm. real violence. Uh, the person who's going to depose uh, Donald Trump, I think, is going to be a Republican somewhere in the between now and 2020, where someone says, I've had it. I've just been t- tired of being you know, bullied and intimidated and insulted, and you know, and he's so disgusting. I think his own, someone in his own party is going to uh, bring his career to an end. Uh, will he ever be judged on the Republican policies that have come forward? Will, yeah. at the end of all of this, people say, hey, look, he did this, he did this. It turned out as, as much as it was uh, quite a yeah. roller coaster ride, he was a good president. I think, let me use a different word than good. Let me use a word impactful. 
I think he's actually going to go down as a very divisive, very controversial president by presidential scholars now who write books and evaluate them you know, over time. And there's a real industry in the United States of presidential scholars who do nothing but rank one president against another. I think he's going to go down as one of those least loved presidents who was nonetheless extremely impactful. And I don't say it was impactful in a necessarily good way. Mm. It could be in a bad way you're impactful. He's certainly made politics much dirtier and more disgusting and, and more venal and vile. But, um, you know, his tax act, his tax amendments is just truly, I mean, it's going to reorder the international trading community because it's pulling in billions and billions of dollars internationally parked offshore in other countries because the tax act was so prohibitive to bring the money home. Apple's bringing home gazillions and gazillions of dollars and in investing in new uh, plants and um, uh, campuses in the United States. And that's going to go on over the next two or three or four years. And that's very, very impactful. It's going to trade trading cause changes in trading patterns. But I don't mean that he's going to go down as, and they're going to write him up as a, a great president, a wonderful leader who inspired everybody like Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or John F. Kennedy. He'll never get that ranking, but he will get the, I think, the impactfulness value uh, uh, because he's changing immigration um, uh, laws and not just laws, but attitudes. He's changing the whole court system because he's packing the courts with the right-wing conservatives. So he will go down as an impactful president. Where does that leave Canada? Well, we've got to manage that uh, because, um, and I know we always talk about the longest undefended border, but let's set that aside. We are, I think it's fair to say, are more affected by the United States than any other single country in the world, simply because our economies are so tightly integrated, A, and B, there's a lot of similarities. Much as Canadians like to say, no, 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 we're not like those Americans. Well, there's enormous similarities between us. We speaking, we're mostly majority English speaking. It's English common law legal system. We've harmonized our regulations. We watch the same TV shows and the same movies, for goodness sake, the same talk shows. You know, and then we have this pretense that we're completely different. No, we're not. You know, the British are far more different from Canadians than the Americans and Canadians. Mm. And so <laughs> it's, we have to manage that relationship because we're only one-tenth the size. I mean, Trudeau, the father Trudeau, had a wonderful quote, and it still is true today. He said, living next door to the United States is like the mouse sleeping with the elephant. When the, mouse, when the elephant sneezes, the, ca- the mouse catches pneumonia. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, that really, really summarized it perfectly. We must have a working relationship with the United States, no matter how obnoxious the president is, how much we dislike him, because it's in our strategic self-interest. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, talking all things NAFTA and Trans-Pacific Partnership. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So it looks like uh, Rush is, well, as they've said in quotes, basically done. Uh, it looks like the time has come. Alex Lifeson, guitarist and legendary Canadian rock band Rush, says that the band is basically done. Uh, no more music, no more touring at this point. Uh, to talk more about all of this, music publicist and general music guru Eric Elper, he is with us now. Eric, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, hang on, it's my fault. Eric, Play you there? Tom Sawyer, all the way through. Sorry, go ahead. I, I just I put you on late there. I had fat <laughs> fingers. Sorry, Eric. Can, can I just not talk? And you can play Tom Sawyer all the way through. <laughs> I love that opening still to this day. And I'm not a huge Rush fan, but that song, so good. Yeah, sad news. It looks like that they're just a little bit jealous that Neil Diamond basically canceled his touring. 
and uh, Alex Lifeson uh, had just announced that uh, that Rush isn't going to be doing really anything else these days. So, what are the reasons for this? Why now? Well, there, there's there's really a couple of them, and all of them really boils down to Neil Peart. Um, yeah. Not only is he you know, the the amazing, wonderful drummer. He's been inducted into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. He's also the lyric writer. And as much as, say, Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones is the soul of the band, um, there's been a number of tragedies and recoveries that Neil has had to go through. Not yeah. only was Neil's first daughter and then only child um, killed in a single car accident back in 1997. Um, but his longtime wife passed away as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he just got remarried. Um, they He now has American citizenship, so he's got dual. And he just kind of wants to be a retired drummer. He wants to spend time with his family. And where Neil goes i think the rest of the band goes too when yeah. it comes to not only the lyrics but not, it's not so much the spirituality but i think it would be mostly the spirit of where neil of, of where neil pert wants to take the band and uh once neil decided that that's it he was done he didn't want to go on the road for four to eight months of the year every couple of years anymore uh, getty lee and alex lifeson just basically followed and, you know, as you mentioned, uh, far more than a drummer, this guy pretty much sits around a symphony of, of percussion while he's doing his thing. And with three members in the band, they're all so unique. You, it, Unlike other bands where you could maybe lose a member and bring another one in, it's a, pretty difficult for a band like this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Neil has also spoken about his, his tendonitis and his shoulder problems, which a lot of drummers face. Um, it's one of the reasons why Phil Collins, for instance, left the road, and he can't even hold a pair of drumsticks, much less tape them to his uh, to his hands like he used to. Mm. It's just a brutal, awful... Um, strenuous activity and it's very it's very hard as you get older isn't it yeah oh look at look at when you're 60 how well you can move normally um and you know then you're sitting for three hours behind a drum kit um and you know recording and and writing um but you know alex and getty are are pretty both self-sustaining musicians where alex has certainly kept himself busy with um not only with um with special projects and solo albums. He's also now a columnist for the West End Phoenix, which is a brand new Toronto community newspaper that's headed up by Dave Bedini from the Rio Statics. Getty Lee probably has another solo album, if not one more left that, that's in him, um, as he's done in the past. So uh, I don't think that we're going to see the end of Rush. I think that they're still probably perhaps sitting on material that is somewhere in the vaults that they'll just keep re-releasing or putting box sets together like they do with bands like Pink Floyd. But there's still very much a demand for this band. I mean, the success is, is, I think, you know, one of the greatest that this country has ever seen just in terms of record sales with, you know, 30, 40, 65 million copies sold around the world. Uh, you talked about the still the staying power of this band, the drawing power, you know, at concert venues and such. I mean, this is a progressive rock band from the from the 70s. That was the style. That was the the style of the era. Then why did this band continue? Why? Why? Why the fascination with this band? Men. <laughs> um, you're right. You're right. You know, it, 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 for our for people who grew up in the prog rock 
loving era of Emerson, Lake and Palmer or Genesis or yes, this was the band that really moved with the times, you know, I remember as a kid knowing about the band. Yes, but not digging them whatsoever. But then when they came out with 90215 and their album that has owner of lonely heart on it, they became very, very poppy and very rocky. And they wrote songs for the radio. Mm -hmm. Rush did that. And Rush continued to do that. So they continued to move with the time. You know, they even did a rap in the beginning, in in the middle of roll the bone. So Mm. they kind of moved along with, not only their generation, but a whole new generation as well. I mean, this is a band that's never won a Grammy, never really was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine until very recently, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, they've got 24 gold albums, 14 14 platinum records, the longest streak of gold albums in history right behind the Beatles and Kiss and the Stones. So this is a band that, that really never forgot who their fans were and never got off the road. And that's a really important distinction where you see bands like Chicago and Moody Blues and Journey all still, you know, getting 15,000 people out to each and every show because they never left. They never made people miss them. And Rush was the exact same way. Every two or three years, you can expect to see them, whether you're in Hamilton or Toronto. So do you think this is it? Do you think we will see one more Rush album of new material or is that is that gone? I'd love to see that, but I just don't think that it's going to happen. Um, I think the further away that they go from being away from the band, Mm. the more situated you are with not going back to the band. Because with that comes the pressure and the design of, well, let's just go do a couple of shows. And then the next thing you know, you're staring down at an 18-month world reunion tour. And I just don't think they want to go there. Well, and you know, this is something that perhaps we think about in our world as opposed to their world is this is a company. This is a conglomerate. This employs people. This is payroll. It's not just, hey, let's go play somewhere. No, this is, you know, these tours are literally small towns moving into your city with dozens, if not hundreds of people that are employed months and months in advance when it comes to everything from the ticket sales to the promotion to the lighting to the stage setup to the tech. Um, This isn't just three guys in a room just sitting around talking. If that was the case, then they've got the ability to hit the button and have everybody move again. But I just don't think that they... It's not that I think that they want the pressure, because I don't think it's that. I think that they're just, they just don't want to perhaps get their fans all revved up, that they're back in full force again. Because it's really hard to be in a band like Rush and do things small. That's what and I was just, just about to say, you know, Eric. You really, you really can't, is on them. yeah, you really can't do a scaled down version of Rush, can you? No, like you can't play a La Luna. No. You know, like no. You, can't, you can't decide no. to go out acoustically and play the mod club with just Alex yeah. and Getty. Although, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that Alex might be neat. Done a, yeah, Alex has done a lot of acoustic shows. He's done a lot of benefit concerts in the, yeah. in the Toronto area. Getty's kind of, I think he's just so happy to follow, you know, his beloved Toronto Blue Jays. Like we see mm. him right behind yeah. the plate every yeah. Blue Jay game. I think that's a really good life. I mean, they won. You yeah. know, they made it. They yeah. made it in a country that is really difficult to be a success and a longstanding success and more props to them. Yeah. Your thoughts on the announcement of Neil Diamond stepping away from touring? Very sad. I, I'm a huge fan of my Facebook page is is just bombarded by 
um, by fans that have followed him probably obsessively since the jazz singers, and that's mm. probably the first album that that our generation remembers from him. Um, he's got to do what he has to do, and I think that we're going to see a lot more of this as these artists not only live longer. And because they're healthier, because they realize that there's a lot of money to be made right now on the touring area. So they've got to take care of themselves. They've got to take care of their bodies. So all these musicians that used to retire at age 50 are now still going in their 60s and 70s. And if you're, you know, if you're, you know, an old blues guy, then, you know, you can keep going and going like Charlie Musselwhite can. But, um, you know, it's a sad day, but hopefully he'll still manage to be able to record a couple more albums in the studio at his leisure and at his pressure. They say that uh, he's actually canceled shows, uh, upcoming yeah. shows. So any any word on, on how severe his illness may be? I guess he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Yeah. Um, but has it got to the point where, you know, he has to cancel shows? Yeah. I And, and I, I don't think it's it's even a matter of, of putting him through the, the strain of doing a two and a half hour show and, and everything that comes with it. I think it's, it's also being so far away because he's canceled shows in Australia and New Zealand. Right. Um, that, those aren't easy places sometimes to get medical help. Mm. And even though that you can have the finest doctors um, in the world traveling with you, um, sometimes you just want to go to that Los Angeles medical center and get the treatment that you, that you want to, um, and be with your family when, when these things strike up, you know, we, we saw it as Canadians with what somebody like a Michael J. Fox went through. Yeah. Um, and you know, he took years off of his acting career, even though that some people would say, well, you know, you just go there for an hour a week and you do a show, but it's everything else that comes with that. It's the sheer amount of rehearsals. And uh, I don't think quite frankly, I don't think he wants to embarrass himself. Mm, You know, he's got a great legacy. He doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. So why mess with that and just take care of your health? Good point. Eric Alper, music publicist, has been with us talking about Alex Lifeson and the rest of Rush and, of course, uh, Neil Diamond. Eric, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.